History shall write his name on the immortal scroll of fame. They shall all his deeds proclaim. Roosevelt the cry. Roosevelt the soldier true. Roosevelt the statesman too. Sane for me and safe for you. Roosevelt the cry. Welcome to the abridged presidential histories with Kenny Ryan. Episode 26. Theodore Roosevelt, the Rough Rider. Theodore Roosevelt is a politician who has been looming on the horizon for a while now, and I have to say, cutting an intimidating figure. This is a guy who drank a gallon of coffee a day and lived the type of hyperactive lifestyle you'd expect from someone with that much caffeine in their veins. He was a state assemblyman, a rancher, a police chief, an author, an assistant naval secretary, a rough writer, a governor, a vice president, a president, a big game hunter, and more. How do you tell that story in less than 60 minutes, which is the whole conceit of my show? You don't. You can't, which is why it's lucky I started interviewing historians to fill the gaps in the narrative a year ago. I have a bunch of them lined up over the weeks ahead to help fill in the portrait that is Teddy Roosevelt. For this episode, I'm going to focus most of my time on the 15 months that turned Teddy from a C-list political nobody to an A-list political heavyweight and the ways his administration used that cachet to change the presidency. Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was born October 27, 1858 in New York City with a silver spoon in his mouth. And I am not kidding. Theodore's family had been loaded ever since his grandfather made the right business moves during the Panic of 1837 to turn an economic tragedy into opportunity, creating a business and fortune that would last for generations. By the time T.R. came into the world, his father was something altogether new in the 19th century, a full-time philanthropist, someone who spent their time and their fortune improving the community they were a part of. T.R. Sr. had a huge influence on Jr.'s personality, politics, and career. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time than usual on T.R.'s childhood here. For one, T.R.'s father inspired Theodore to live an active lifestyle. Young Theodore was a scrawny kid who frequently suffered terrifying asthma attacks. When Theodore was a boy, his father told him he'd have to build a strong body to overcome his asthma, and T.R. took this advice to heart. He started working out and taking boxing lessons. When he turned 14, his father bought him a gun. When he couldn't hit anything, his father bought him glasses. T.R. is famous for living a non-stop lifestyle, and it started here with the influence of his father. Roosevelt Sr., in a weird way, also inspired his son's martial vigor when he refused to serve in the Civil War. Teddy's mother was from the South, and she forbade her husband from joining a war against her Southern family. Theodore Jr. would forever have trouble reconciling his father's refusal to fight in the Civil War, and it would inspire him to go to great lengths to engineer his own chance to serve in a war and prove that Roosevelt's could be heroes. The third big impact T.R.'s father had on his son was to instill him with a passion for political and economic reform. T.R. Sr.'s nickname among his children was Greatheart, 
and he led the charge to found the New York City's AIDS Society and Orthopedic Hospital. In 1877, Greatheart was asked by President Rutherford B. Hayes to clean up the New York City Customs House, which corrupt party boss Roscoe Conkling was using as a piggy bank to fuel his political machine. What happened next is familiar to anyone who listened to episodes 19 or 21 on President Hayes or Arthur. Roscoe Conkling opposed Theodore Sr.'s appointment to the Customs House and fought it every step of the way, dragging Roosevelt's name through the mud and delaying congressional proceedings to block him. As the battle ground on, Theodore Sr. got sick with cancer. In December 1877, Conkling won the fight. Roosevelt Sr.'s nomination was defeated. Two months later, Greatheart died passing away hours before his son could return home from college to say his goodbyes. This would have a tremendous impact on TR's sense of justice and hunger for reform. So, to recap, Theodore Roosevelt's father inspired him to be a progressive, to live an active lifestyle, and filled him with a shame he felt he could only overcome by serving his country in war. TR is going to carry this with him the rest of his life. The years following Greatheart's death were an absolute blur for Roosevelt Jr. that I'm going to run through quickly, because I have some future historian interviews lined up where we will dive much deeper into it. In 1880, he married Alice Hathaway Lee and graduated Harvard with a reputation for okay academics, but tremendous energy and a voracious appetite for books. He then started preparing for law school, but dropped out to run for the New York State Assembly and won. At age 23, the New York GOP elected TR the youngest minority leader in state history, and he used the position to tick off party bosses and advocate progressive policies. Not one to slow down, TR also published a book on the Naval War of 1812 around this time, the first of roughly 35 books he would write over the course of his life. And then, tragedy. On February 12, 1884, T.R. got word that Alice had given birth to their first child, also named Alice, but then a second telegram arrived. His wife and mother were sick. Come home quick. When T.R. arrived, his brother Elliot met him at the door looking ashen and distraught. There is a curse on this house, Elliot said. Teddy's mother died of typhoid that morning. His wife died of complications from birth that afternoon. In his diary, Teddy wrote a large X, followed by the words, The light has gone out of my life. Theodore left his daughter with his sister and soon left his life in New York altogether. T.R. went west and spent several years living the life of an exuberant but unsuccessful cattle rancher in the Dakotas. When someone pulled a gun on him and called him four eyes, T.R. knocked the guy out. Roosevelt did crazy things like personally capture boat thieves and then restage their capture for a photo shoot, which is a pretty good metaphor for this phase of his life. It was largely for show. Sure, he bought a ranch and spent some time in the Dakotas and he was getting away from the heartache back home, but he was still wintering in New York and made frequent visits back to the East Coast. The Dakotas ventured ended for good when a harsh winter killed nearly all of his cattle, wiping out his operation. T.R. then remarried. Edith Kermit Caro was a childhood friend, and the pair had five children together. He ran for mayor of New York and lost, 
He served a couple years in D.C. as a U.S. Civil Service Commissioner during Benjamin Harrison's presidency. He spent a few years as police commissioner in New York, where he was famous for walking the beat at night in search of loafing officers. And then he landed a job as Assistant Naval Secretary in William McKinley's presidential administration in 1897. T.R.'s qualifications for this job included writing that book on the Naval War of 1812 and, more importantly, vigorously campaigning for McKinley's election. And this is where our narrative slows down again, right here in 1897. Because, sure, Roosevelt has been busy to this point, but it's not like he's a proven politician with a guaranteed future. He's been a state assemblyman, held a few appointed posts, he's a failed cattle rancher, he's published some decent books, (laughs) he lost a campaign for mayor. It's not a bad resume, but it doesn't glitter. But starting with a stint as assistant naval secretary, TR's next few steps rocketed him from C-list to A-list in a matter of years. And it starts with war. TR believed that if the United States wanted to be great, if he was going to get an opportunity to be great, there had to be war. It was a fairly popular belief back then that war brings out the best in nations, that it instills them with energy and virtue. A nation that doesn't fight is a nation that gets soft. The moment you stop fighting is the moment you start dying, more or less. So how do these beliefs influence his actions? Well, they're going to lead to him doing everything in his power to help manufacture a war, a war he can fight in to prove the Roosevelt name. A war that would make America strong. A war where he can invite the press along for the ride. And he's going to help pick that war with Spain. Why Spain? Well, a few more reasons. One, defeating a European power would impress the rest of Europe. Two, Spain was an empire with a lot of cachet, a lot of name recognition, but it was overstretched and way past its prime. In, In other words, it was a fight we could win. And three, there was a good casus belli. Casus belli, Latin for occasion for war, was really important. It's hard to get a democracy to go to war without a good reason. And Spain was the only country out there providing one on a platter. Just 90 nautical miles off the coast of Florida, Spain was ruthlessly suppressing a revolution in Cuba. You may remember from episode 25 on McKinley that Cuba was a major producer of sugar and that sugar is a brutal crop to produce. High rates of injury and death on the plantations and the abusive treatment of plantation workers led the Cubans to revolt. The Spanish responded by rounding up all the Cubans in concentration camps, where prisoners died of disease and starvation, and then sending soldiers out to murder anyone outside of the camps in the country. An effective PR campaign by Cuban expats had the American people squarely in the camp of Cuban independence, and there was a lot of pressure on President McKinley to go to war. T.R. read the room, fanned the flames with the press, and inched the Navy toward war. And some of the things he did, they were smart moves, but definitely insubordinate in spirit. For example, when the actual naval secretary was out one day, T.R. used his temporarily enhanced authority to issue a flurry of orders. 
American fleets loaded up on coal and munitions so they'd be ready to strike Spain at a moment's notice. TR sent the Pacific Fleet to Hong Kong with orders to attack Manila and capture the Philippines if war broke out. When an American warship, the USS Maine, was sunk by an explosion in Havana Harbor, newspapers reported, quote, Assistant Secretary Roosevelt convinced the explosion of the warship was not an accident. And if this podcast were Arrested Development, this is where the narrator's voice would come in and say, years later, we learn it was an accident. When war became inevitable, Congress authorized $50 million to fund a conflict with Spain. TR went on a spending spree, even buying ships the Spanish had commissioned by outbidding them as they came off the blocks. He also acquired and retrofitted private yachts. The Navy bought or leased 100 vessels under Teddy's watch. TR was also, of course, urging McKinley toward war every chance he got. Now, This is not a war caused by Teddy Roosevelt. He is not in anybody's top five reasons the war happened. But when the war did break out, he did everything he could to become the face of it. On April 20th, 1898, after McKinley felt all avenues to negotiate peace had been exhausted, Congress voted to declare war on Spain. On May 15th, less than a month later, T.R. submitted his resignation to the Naval Department. When he told his colleagues why, they thought he was crazy. He wanted to go fight in the war. Okay, so here's one of the areas where T.R. really starts to set himself apart from just about all other politicians. There have been plenty of war hawks in American history, belligerent politicians who advocated for war and watched it from D.C. when it happened. There's also been plenty of politicians who... They were soldiers or generals, and then they moved to D.C. and became politicians. But this isn't T.R. He's doing it backwards. Saying, I have a horror of people who bark but don't bite, T.R. quit his desk job in D.C. and signed up to fight on the front. The unit that he joined, this mix of volunteers called the Rough Riders, were a bizarre gathering of guys from all slices of life who had gotten swept up with war fever and signed up for the fight. There was a Harvard quarterback, a national tennis champion, a former captain of the Columbia crew. There were cowboys and Indians and New York City police officers. One member, seeing the ocean for the first time, had his hat blown off his head by the Caribbean winds and exclaimed, Oh, oh, Jim, my hat blew into the creek. The press loved it. This is a war that, frankly, on the Cuban front, got off to a slow start. The old army maxim, hurry up and wait, was very much in force here. And the colorful Rough Riders gave journalists something to report on during all the waiting they were doing in Texas and Florida, while army and navy brass tried to figure out how to get everybody to Cuba. The bean counters were not doing a very good job of it. The guy organizing things in Florida, where everybody was supposed to muster and board their transports for Cuba, was an old Indian fighter who didn't know a thing about logistics. Trains would just show up unexpected with nobody knowing what was in them or where they should go. When it was finally time to load the ships and depart for Cuba, T.R. learned the Navy had failed to secure enough transports, and the same small vessel had been promised to three different regiments when it was only big enough for one. Roosevelt wrote, quote, 
I ran at full speed to our train and, leaving a strong guard with the baggage, I double-quicked the rest of the regiment up onto the boat, just in time to board her as she came into the quay, and then to hold her against the 2nd regulars and 71st, who had arrived a little too late, being a shade less ready than we were in the matter of individual initiative. The Cuban campaign was a mess from the start, and it's kind of amazing it succeeded at all. When the Rough Riders' transport reached the Cuban coast, they realized nobody had ever practiced how to disembark. Two soldiers and numerous horses drowned trying to get from the ships to the beach, and it's a damn lucky thing the Spanish weren't there to oppose them, or this could have been a 19th century Bay of the Pigs. Once the Rough Riders were all on the beach, the ship turned around and left, with most of their equipment still aboard. All T.R. had with him was a yellow Macintosh, a toothbrush, and an extra pair of glasses he'd sewn into the linings of his tunic and hat. When supplies finally were offloaded, the army failed to provide enough food. When T.R. told a commissary sergeant he needed to requisition a half ton of beans meant for someone else for his men instead, the sergeant replied, Why, Colonel, your men can't eat 1,100 pounds of beans. To which T.R. replied, you don't know what appetites my officers have. He got the beans. Leading this mess of an army was a mess of a cavalry officer. Joseph Wheeler was a 61-year-old former Confederate. Yeah, he fought in the Civil War for the wrong side. He had been placed in this role as a gesture of reconciliation to the South, but he probably should have stayed home. On at least one occasion, the old officer was heard to shout, We've got the damn Yankees on the run! Despite all this confusion, the American army, with the support of Cuban guerrillas, managed to make its way to the outskirts of Santiago, where the Spanish navy was bottled up in port. If the Americans could capture the hills overlooking the city and the port, they could shell the navy at their leisure, and it would be good game for Spain and the Caribbean. This is the Battle of San Juan Hill. There were actually two hills at this battle, Kettle Hill, which was smaller, and San Juan Hill, which was larger. The Rough Riders were initially sent to capture Kettle Hill. When they arrived, Roosevelt found a group of regular army soldiers hiding in the grass and refusing to attack the Duggan Spaniards at the top. When Roosevelt and the volunteers started charging past the hiding regulars, those guys were shamed into joining in. With Roosevelt leading the way, the Americans drove the Spaniards from the top of Kettle Hill, only to soon come under fire from Spanish positions on the taller San Juan Hill. Roosevelt again ordered his men to attack and began the charge, and he made it about 100 yards, the length of a football field, before he realized nobody had heard his order, and all his men were way back behind him. He ran back, issued the order again, and this time it stuck. By the time he reached the top of San Juan Hill, it had largely been cleared by other Americans and the Spaniards were again in flight, but that didn't take anything away from the rush T.R. felt. He had proven the Roosevelt name, he had restored family honor. Twenty years later, a month before his death, and after many more lofty accomplishments, he would say, San Juan was the greatest day of my life. The Battle of San Juan Hill effectively secured Cuba for the Americans. But, before I leave Cuba, I want to hit on one more thing. Remember how the American people were all about Cuban independence? Well, 
that lasted roughly until the American soldiers saw the Cubans they were coming to help and realized, holy smokes, these people are black. That's right. The Cubans doing PR for the revolution up in the States were mostly light-skinned and of Spanish origin. So the American people thought they were sailing out to rescue an oppressed group of people that looked like them. The Spanish guerrillas who met the soldiers on the island were largely black, the descendants of slaves, and that did not go over well with many of the American rank and file. After the Spanish had been defeated and the conversation turned to Cuban self-rule, one American general told the press, Self-government? Why, those people are no more fit for self-government than gunpowder is for hell. Congress, which had passed an amendment before the invasion that said Cuba would be independent, now passed a new bill that said, sure, Cuba could be independent, but the United States would basically be in control of its foreign policy. Cuba had to lease land for naval stations to the Americans, and the United States could intervene in Cuban manners whenever it liked to preserve its independence. And then... Americans came in. They built schools, cleaned streets, they trained doctors. They also started buying up all the island's best land and exploiting Cuba's resources. By the end of the occupation, more than 80% of Cuba's mineral exports were controlled by American interest. This planted the seeds for the Cuban Revolution of 1953 and the current strained state of Cuban-American relations. But that is all well down the road. When Teddy Roosevelt sailed back to the United States, he sailed back a hero. The American people had fallen in love with the Rough Riders. They'd seen all the stories in the press, and they had fallen in love with Theodore. This timing of TR's return was fortuitous. The Republican governor of New York had just been sunk by a scandal of his own making, and the party establishment was desperate for a war hero to emerge from Cuba who could save their party and win the governor's mansion. They would have preferred it not be Theodore, who had proven himself fiercely independent of their control every prior time he'd held office in the state, but beggars can't be choosers. And Roosevelt was the war hero who emerged. In 1898, running as much as a rough rider as a progressive, T.R. won the New York governorship by a hair. 662,000 to 644,000. In six months, he had gone from forgettable assistant naval secretary to the war hero governor of the Empire State. His political career suddenly looked very bright indeed. But, well, the old guard still didn't really like his progressive ways. And after two years, New York party bosses plotted a way to get rid of him they reached out to President McKinley, whose first vice president had just died, and pitched McKinley on the idea of making Roosevelt his vice president in 1900. Roosevelt was known for being a great campaigner, after all, and who wouldn't vote for a war hero? When McKinley said yes, McKinley's campaign advisor, Mark Hanna, was horrified, saying, What's the matter with all of you? Don't any of you realize there's only one life between that madman and the presidency? On September 6, 1901, an anarchist extinguished that one life with a shot from his pistol at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. Roosevelt's unlikely career took its unlikeliest leap yet. President of the United States.
And so, on September 14, 1901, Theodore Roosevelt, the former New York governor, rough rider, assistant naval secretary, police commissioner, civil service board member, author, rancher, and state assemblyman, was sworn in as the 26th president of the United States in Buffalo, New York, where Theodore had just arrived. At 42 years old, he was, and still is, the youngest man to become president in American history. But what did the world and the country look like when Roosevelt became president? Let's look around. Internationally, the United States was suddenly carrying a lot more clout than it used to. The previous three years, McKinley had annexed Hawaii, defeated Spain, freed Cuba, seized Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, and sent troops to China. The United States was no longer that former colony across the sea. It was a world power. Not the strongest world power, but a world power. The strongest world power was Great Britain, whose monarch Victoria had just died, and whose armies were currently engaged in suppressing a revolt known as the Second Boer War in South Africa. A young, pig-nosed journalist named Winston Churchill had been captured by the guerrillas during this war when his armored train was attacked. But he famously escaped confinement and navigated 300 miles back to British lines, transforming himself into a national celebrity and sparking his political career in the process. Over in Asia, Russia was expanding to the east, Japan was expanding to the west, and that's definitely going to end in a fight. In Africa, Europeans had overthrown almost all of the continent's powers and carved the continent into a myriad of colonies, with England and France the big winners. In South America, Chile, Argentina, and Brazil dominated a continent that was largely rid of colonial overlords and ruled by one-party states. Oh, and uh, back in 1893, New Zealand became the first country to give women the right to vote. Rock on, New Zealand! Domestically, Americans were trying to decide what to make of their new position in the world. They had overseas possessions. That was weird. One of them, the Philippines, was in revolt. That was very weird. The American body was changing and doing weird things, and there were new yearnings, more land, fighting old beliefs, colonies are gross. The country had to decide what kind of nation it was going to be. As Theodore Roosevelt became president, there was a concern bordering on fear that a warmonger like Roosevelt would drag the American flag around the world and through the mud in search of further military glory. But that did not happen. T.R. rose from sideshow to center stage by being a hawk and a war hero. But once he had the spotlight, he turned that penchant for military action toward political action. To the surprise of many, American greatness would not be pursued on the battlefield, but by embracing the progressive cause of labor in a way no prior president had before. The best case in point of how TR's labor policy was different from the presidents who preceded him is the coal strike of 1902. The start of the story is going to sound familiar, but the end is going to be something new. In 1902, 140,000 coal miners walked off the job to protest low wages, dangerous working conditions, long hours, and other mistreatments. At this time in U.S. history, 
there wasn't much that could be more damaging to the U.S. economy than a coal strike. Coal was used to power trains and heat homes. And winter was coming. Winterfell was going to need that coal. The price of coal quadrupled as the strike went on, and every American who didn't want to freeze to death was feeling the squeeze. This is the point where all previous presidents had either done nothing or sent troops to violently break up the strike. But Teddy Roosevelt charted a third way, a new way. He summoned the coal mine operators and the union representatives to the White House to personally arbitrate a solution. The union reps were game, but the owners refused to concede anything. They wanted the union members declared outlaws and the army sent in, the old playbook. A frustrated TR said that if he was going to send in the army, it would be to seize the mines from the owners, nationalize them, and work them with army labor until the owners and laborers came to terms. When one of the owners cried, that's not constitutional, TR replied, the constitution is made for the people and not the people for the constitution. A compromise was reached. The miners got a 10% raise. The owners didn't have to recognize the mining union and coal flowed again. And that complaint by the mine owner, it actually strikes on a philosophy that was central to the entire Theodore Roosevelt presidency. While most previous presidents believed they only had powers that the Constitution explicitly said they had, T.R. loudly took the position that presidents had the power to do anything the Constitution didn't expressly forbid. So, take that threat of nationalizing the mines. Previous presidents would have said, I can't do that because the Constitution doesn't say I can. T.R. boldly claimed, I can totally do that because the Constitution doesn't say I can't. This activist president philosophy was at force again when T.R. ordered his attorney general to open up antitrust lawsuits against the Northern Securities Company a new railroad company that used its effective monopoly of northwestern routes to jack up prices on farmers, cattle ranchers, and travelers. When uber-rich financier J.P. Morgan, who owned an interest in the railroad company, went to the White House and said, if we've done something wrong, send your man to my man and they can fix it up, TR's attorney general replied, we don't want to fix it up. We want to stop it. And stop it they did. Roosevelt successfully broke up the Northern Securities Company and launched 44 other antitrust suits. More than presidents Benjamin Harrison, Grover Cleveland, and William McKinley combined. And TR pushed for regulation. A lot of regulation. When Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, revealed how horrifyingly unsanitary Chicago's meatpacking plants were, with diseased and rotten meat being sold to the public, and a story of humans falling into vats and being boiled into lard, TR won passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act within a year. TR wanted regulations against banks and railroads so they couldn't rip off their customers. His definition of which trusts to pursue was simple. If a trust drew profits from behaviors that harmed the public, it should be broken up. If the trust profited from activities that benefited the public, it should be permitted. Actually, I'll let TR explain it in his own words. What I'm about to play for you is a speech Roosevelt recorded years later in 1912 that's preserved in the Library of Congress, 
And I should warn you, his voice might not sound anything like the voice you've imagined in your head. Our aim is to promote prosperity and then to see that prosperity is passed around, that there is a proper division of prosperity. We wish to control big business so as to secure, among other things, good wages for the wage workers and reasonable prices for the consumers. We will not submit to the prosperity that is obtained by lowering the wages of working men and charging an excessive price to consumers, nor to that other kind of prosperity obtained by swindling investors or getting unfair advantages over business rivals. Pretty crazy, right? Not the sound I expected. But also, you can kind of see how he sounds a little like his uh, relative, FDR. So it makes sense. Anyway, when the economy dipped a bit in 1907, TR's corporate enemies blamed his liberal positions. And he threw it right back at them and accused the oligarchs of using their massive wealth to tank the economy as a way to make his policies look bad. It's a counterattack I'm kind of surprised we don't see more of today. Inventing the progressive era would be accomplishment enough for most presidents, but not TR. This guy had caffeine for blood in his veins. He also directed his energy toward one of the great engineering challenges of his day, building a canal across Central America. Okay, so you probably know TR built the Panama Canal. It's one of the most cited things about him in history books. But frankly, the cloak and dagger story of how it happened is so fascinating, I have to go into it. Global interest in a canal across Central America extended back decades, arguably centuries. A canal across Central America could shorten the sea journey from the United States' east coast to its west coast by 8,000 miles. That is weeks of expensive travel around South America eliminated if you can dig a canal. Everybody in the world knew that whoever could build it would reap a fortune from usage fees and gain the ability to more easily contend the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans with only a single fleet sneaking across through the canal. Great Britain and the United States had been so concerned about the potential of each other building the canal that they had signed a treaty in 1850 saying that neither of them could do it without the other's permission. In 1881, France tried to build it and failed. For good reason. Panama is a rocky and hilly jungle rife with mosquitoes and tropical disease. For the United States to try, Roosevelt would have to acquire a concession to the land and overcome the disease, jungle, and civil unrest in the way to complete it. But TR was not one to be daunted by obstacles. During one of his first addresses to Congress in 1902, he made very clear that he wanted to be the president to build the canal, saying, No single great material work which remains to be undertaken on this continent is of such consequence to the American people and he argued it would mark the United States' rise as a great power if we could build it. He immediately went to work, making his dream a reality. First, he reached out to Britain to negotiate his way out of that 1850 treaty that said a canal could not be built without the other's permission. By now, American-British relations were much better than they had been when they were two wary and jealous countries eyeing each other and signing a treaty to stop the other from building a canal. Now, England was only too happy to have America foot the bill for a canal that would benefit its global trade empire. Next, 
TR had to pick a spot and secure the land. Panama, or Nicaragua. And this is where a new character enters the story. One of the savviest businessmen I've seen yet. Philippe Vunot Varia. Philippe was a French financier slash engineer who had acquired a concession in the failed French route across Panama in 1894. If the canal was built in Panama instead of Nicaragua, Philippe stood to make a fortune. This made Philippe a very motivated man. When Philippe learned the United States Congress had voted to build a canal across Nicaragua instead, a longer but flatter route, he leapt into motion to block it and redirect American attention to Panama instead. He got a shot when a volcano erupted in the Caribbean, burying the French town of Saint-Pierre in Martinique and killing 29,000 people, one of the deadliest volcanoes in history. This volcano didn't impact Nicaragua per se, it was 1,600 miles away, but it did spook Congress, whose members asked Nicaragua to confirm, hey, there aren't any uh, volcanoes along this canal route, right? Nicaragua said no, but Philippe knew this was a lie. There was a volcano along the Nicaraguan route. It had erupted just a few years earlier, and it was big. It was so big and mighty that Nicaragua had actually put it on the country's stamps around the time of the eruption. So Philippe, he bought 90 stamps and mailed one to every senator. See? Look! Not only did Nicaragua have a smoking volcano on its stamps, but it also clearly couldn't be trusted. Congress held another vote, and Panama won by eight votes. But then, another roadblock emerged. Panama, at this time, was part of Colombia. And after TR's administration negotiated a canal treaty with Colombia and got Congress to sign off on it, everyone was shocked when Colombia Senate unanimously rejected the treaty, which had been approved by Colombia's negotiators. The U.S. was offering $250,000 a year for a 99-year lease with a $10 million signing bonus for a strip of land six miles wide that would become the Canal Zone. Colombia's Senate wanted more, and to be fair, the canal would be worth a lot more in time, but the U.S. didn't want to pay it. Americans felt it was now the Colombians who were showing they couldn't be trusted. And that's when Philippe popped up again. Philippe had been hanging out in the Panama region for some time, and he knew there were revolutionaries in the cities and jungles who didn't like being ruled by Colombians and Bogota, 500 miles away. They'd revolted before, and the United States had actually helped suppress their revolts in the past in exchange for access to the overland route across Panama. But now, the Americans were about to trade sides. Philippe met with TR, and an unspoken understanding was reached. Philippe told the Panamanian revolutionaries that the United States would back their next revolution if they gave the Americans a good deal on a canal treaty. The Panamanians said yes. On November 3, 1903, they launched their next bid for independence. And within 24 hours, an American cruiser deployed Marines to assist the revolt. Any Colombian soldiers who had not been bought off were neutralized. Another 48 hours later, Theodore became the first world leader to recognize Panamanian independence. The Panamanians stuck to their bargain in part 
because Philippe made himself their diplomat to the United States and did all the negotiating to make sure he got his canal. They signed a canal treaty that was even more generous to the Americans than the one the Colombians had rejected. Work began on May 4, 1904, just six months after the revolt. In November 1906, Roosevelt began the first president in American history to visit foreign soil when he sailed south to check progress on the Panama Canal. Work was completed eight years later and the canal opened in 1914. The canal today generates more than $2.6 billion in revenue each year and has seen more than 1 million ships traverse its waters since it opened. It is an engineering marvel of the modern world and one I'm sure we will hear about again when control is turned over to Panama later in the 20th century. The idea of a Nicaraguan canal, by the way, it still gets kicked around from time to time. In recent years, Chinese investors have talked about building the alternate canal, but the deal is currently in limbo. Maybe someday. Back in 1905, after winning re-election by an overwhelming margin, Theodore Roosevelt surprised his friends and foes alike by announcing he would not run for re-election in 1908. And then he surprised them again by keeping that promise. Instead, he endorsed his good friend and Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, who won the 1908 presidential election with TR's vociferous support. Within four years their once best bud relationship would be destroyed and TR would split the GOP to run against Taft as an independent bull moose party candidate. But I'm going to save that story for Taft's episode. Okay, so how had America changed during the eight years of the Roosevelt administration? Territory-wise, we did now control a strip of land in Central America that would soon be the Panamanian Canal, and Oklahoma became a state in 1907. Over in North Carolina, the Wright brothers achieved their first flight in 1903, so the development of airplanes is right around the corner, and up in Detroit, Henry Ford sold the first Model T in 1908 meaning the mass production of gas-powered cars is also imminently upon us. Oh, and in uh, 1905, a distant relative of TR's named Franklin Roosevelt married TR's niece, Eleanor. At the wedding, TR said to Franklin, Well, Franklin, there's nothing like keeping the name in the family. We will hear more from FDR and Eleanor later. Internationally, Major events were afoot, and TR often found himself in the middle of those two. In 1904, the Empire of Japan launched a surprise attack on the Russian Empire at Port Arthur near Korea, sinking Russia's Pacific Navy and gobbling up huge tracks of the Manchurian Railway. The Russians responded by sending their Baltic Navy around the world to teach Japan a lesson, and then Japan sunk that Navy too. This is about when both sides realized the war needed to end. Japan, because it was running out of supplies and men. Russia, because it kept losing every friggin' battle. TR stepped in to help negotiate a peace. Japan obtained Port Arthur, Korea, some islands, a decent chunk of the Manchurian Railroad, and a new level of respect from European powers. The Russians gained nothing, obvi, and TR earned a Nobel Prize for his efforts. In 
other major events include the first Tour de France and Einstein publishing The Theory of Relativity in 1903, and the Boy Scouts being founded in 1908 when a cavalry officer named Robert S.S. Baden-Powell published the book Scouting for Boys, a title that sounds much creepier today than it did in 1908. TR's post-presidency was every bit as action-packed as his life and administration. He kicked it off by going on a big safari to Africa. Then he nearly died when an assassin shot him during his bull moose run for president in 1912, something we'll cover in Taft's episode. Then he nearly died again when he got sick on a perilous journey to map an unexplored river in the Amazon in 1914. And then he did his best to nearly die a third time when he asked President Woodrow Wilson to let him run off to Europe and fight in World War I, basically at the head of another regiment of Rough Riders. Wilson said no to TR, but Roosevelt's sons enlisted when the United States entered World War I in 1917. This turned out tragically for the Roosevelt family when, in 1918, Roosevelt's son Quentin, a fighter pilot, was shot down behind enemy lines and died. Roosevelt was devastated. Occasionally, when he thought nobody was around, he could be heard softly saying, poor Quinnikins, lamenting the loss of his boy. As the 1920 presidential election approached, T.R. was coming up on 60 years of age, but his body and sorrows were older than that. He'd survived War, an assassin's bullet, disease in the Amazon, and the heartbreak of losing his first wife and youngest son. But he still put on a vigorous show, and the GOP was starting to think he had one last hurrah left in him. T.R. had mended fences with the GOP, which had been pretty upset at him for splitting the party vote in 1912, but it was also getting pretty damn tired of losing to Woodrow Wilson by now. So as 1918 turned to 1919, Roosevelt was the odds-on favorite to be the party's standard-bearer in 1920. But fate had other plans. On January 5th, 1919, Teddy told his wife Edith that he felt as if his heart or breathing were about to stop. But he felt sure it wouldn't happen. A nurse gave him morphine, and he went to bed. He never woke up. At 4 a.m., his breathing became irregular, and at 4.15 a.m., it stopped altogether. His son Archie, who was already home from the war, cabled his brothers across the ocean, quote, The old lion is dead. So what can we learn from the life and administration of Theodore Roosevelt? I think part of the lesson is, imagine what you could accomplish if you drank a gallon of coffee every day. But no, seriously, the energy is something incredible. And I think it's a big part of his success and his charisma. Roosevelt was a scrawny asthmatic with glasses, but he kept showing up places, the Dakota Badlands, the Rough Riders, the campaign trail, and jumping to his task with such enthusiasm and energy that even the most unlikely friends couldn't help but be at least a little bit won over by him. So let's go with a simple lesson. When you pursue something, put your all into it. If the people you lead see you're committed, they're more likely to buy in too. And maybe you can, you know, Build your own canal across Nicaragua.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It makes my day whenever I see a new five-star review. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Gar Fife and Drum Corps. The intro music was a recording of Oscar Brands from Smithsonian Folkway Records. The primary biography for today's episode was T.R. The Last Romantic by H.W. Brands. In our next episode, I'll be joined by fellow podcast host Alicia of Civics and Coffee, and we'll take a closer look at the progressivism of Theodore Roosevelt. Where did it come from? And what is his legacy of environmental, political, and economic reform? That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>